Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Okay, welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture. Let's stand up and begin in prayer. Through the prayers of our Holy Fathers, Lord Jesus Christ, our God, have mercy upon us and save us. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Through the prayers of our Holy Fathers, Lord Jesus Christ, our God, have mercy upon us and save us. Amen. Uh, a few quick announcements on our way in. A number of people stopped me and asked me, how do I find this particular file on the new website? Uh, audio file. They wanted to listen to a particular talk. The best way to do that, for all of you that are familiar with the Institute, for those that are not, we have over 350 hours of educational programs available on our website for free. For those that are regular over there uh, going and checking out the Institute's website and listening to audio files, if you click on the entire library time, instead of going to history or philosophy or theology, that spreadsheet or graph that comes up is sortable so that you can sort it by date, speaker's last name, topic, and so forth. So when you get on the entire library page, you'll see at the top all those things. Click on those, and they'll, they'll cycle the whole system accordingly, and then you can just find your thing from there, whether it's the most recent talk or talks by Dr. Marshner or whatever it, your, it suits your uh, desires at the, at the moment. So that's how you do that. Okay, wonderful. Now, please join me in welcoming back Dr. William Marshner. Thank you, Sabatino. In the week which has gone by since my last talk here, I uh, got an email from somebody who ha had a technical question to raise. We can't get into too many technicalities uh, in expounding this book, but I will say something about his question. He questioned whether Lewis was quite right to say that uh, a world with matter in it and so on, but without pain, would be logically impossible. Okay? Uh, Lewis always said he's not a theologian. The correct way to discuss that kind of possibility is under the label, what's possible for God, de potentia ordinata. What can God do consistent with his previous decisions? Well, in raising the problem of pain, we assume that there's a good God and he's chosen to make a world with us in it. Then we can ask, well, why aren't we happier? Hmm? That's the problem of pain. But given that God has chosen to make a world with us in it, could there be a world without pain? A world in which nobody can hurt anybody else? A world without viruses, et cetera, et cetera? That's the right framework in which to approach these questions. And I think that when you pose the proper standard of possibility, it will be seen that Lewis is right.
All right, that uh, to uh, touch briefly on a topic we had last time. And now I'm ready to move on. We saw Lewis discussing the divine goodness last time. He agrees that God's goodness is his loving kindness. But God's love is not senile benevolence. God's love is like the love of an artist for his work. And when that work needs correction, the artist corrects it. The love of a good owner for a pet. When the pet needs correction, the owner corrects it. Like the love of a good parent for a child. When the child needs correction, the parent corrects. And also like the love of a good husband for his wife. When she uh, develops various bad habits, he's not indifferent to that, but will help her out of them. You think it's all the other way. It's, uh... <laughs> right. All right, I'm not getting into that one. All right. So God's love for us, precisely because it's a real love, involves a great deal of corrective activity. Well, now, the question becomes, why does the human race need so much correction? Is there really a serious problem of human wickedness? This is the topic that Lewis addresses in chapter 4. And he laments the fact that throughout history, people have mostly understood that their fellow man is dangerous and bad, and they themselves have lots of bad in them. And nobody was surprised to hear that there was a problem of sin. They would be surprised to hear if there was an answer to it. Nowadays, unfortunately, people have gotten into the comfortable assumption that, well, we're all just pretty good and nothing's so really bad and, and eh, what's all this stuff about human wickedness? So we now have to preach the diagnosis. Okay? God has to intervene a lot because we're ill. What do you mean ill? I'm fine. I'm okay, you're okay. Oh, yeah? Lewis thinks there are two main causes for contemporary man's blindness to the extent of his own wickedness. One of the causes is the fact, he says, for about the last hundred years, we've concentrated on just one of the virtues, kindness or mercy. We feel that as long as you're a kind person, you're really a good person. And, and there's nothing really, really, really terribly wrong, except probably cruelty. Well, the trouble with all this emphasis on kindness is that kindness is fatally easy to attribute to yourself on quite inadequate grounds. Everyone feels benevolent if nothing happens to be bothering him. Right. A man easily comes to feel that he's kind, wouldn't hurt a fly, has his heart in the right place, 
even though he's never lifted a finger to help anybody. It's just, I feel good about everybody. I feel, yeah, I'm benevolent. Right. We think we're kind when we're only content, when we're only happy. So kindness is a fatally easy virtue to give ourselves. It's not so easy to imagine that we're temperate. Not nearly so easy to imagine that we're chaste or humble or courageous. Okay, then there has been the impact of psychoanalysis on the modern mind, which I am happy to say we no longer have to deal with because it is defunct. It was yesteryear's science. It's gone. It's bunk. It was pseudoscience. It was hugely influential at the time Lewis wrote this book. But now, mercifully, it is all gone. Now, we are deceived about how good most of us are because of our habit of only looking at the outside of things. I see you from the outside. I think I'm not much worse than you. Everybody says you're a decent sort of person and better than that nasty so-and-so. So, yeah, I'm about the same. But even though it's superficial level, we're probably wrong. I, I can't be too sure that my friends think I'm as good as you are. Uh, they probably think I'm not. And if you seem not bad to me, and I seem not bad to you, here's the problem. To what extent is that appearance deceptive? Okay. You don't seem to be too bad. Well, how deceptive that is, is, is between you and God. But if I don't seem too bad, I know that's a deception. All right. Every man, every human being, not very holy or very arrogant, has to live up to the outward appearances of other people. Sure we do. And we all know that there is that within us which falls far below the standards we're expected to show to other people. So does this mean that when we try to live a life of outward respectability and so on, does this mean that we're practicing hypocrisy? No. Or if it does, it's just because the right definition of hypocrisy is vice paying its proper tribute to virtue. Okay? If you are not as good, really, as you appear to be, it's not hypocrisy. That is your fair tax that you pay for the good opinion of other people. Which good opinion you respect. You're only a hypocrite if you go around saying, everything is as it seems. My virtue is every bit as resplendent in private <laughs> as it appears to you in my public visage. That's hypocrisy. Okay. Then Lewis gets into a delicate discussion, which um, I'm just going to summarize very quickly. It has to do with 
the difficulty, if I may put it this way, this is a little bit more Catholic way of putting it than Lewis himself uses. It has to do with the difficulty of making a really adequate confession. We confess ugly facts, but the mean cowardice or shabbiness is something that is so thoroughly inside us that it just won't all go into words. Yeah. I do not think it's our fault that we cannot tell the real truth about ourselves. I'm at the bottom of page 53. The persistent, lifelong inner murmur of spite, jealousy, prurience, greed, and self-complacency simply will not go into words. But the important thing is that we should not mistake our inevitably limited utterances for a full account of the worst that is inside us. Okay? Now, this is a point that I often um, emphasize uh, in another context. God knows how shallow our confessions are. Mm -hmm. He knows how shallow our repentance is. And he accepts it anyway. There is the magnificent generosity of God. No, we cannot put into words in the ear of a priest or anywhere else the whole story of our inner discontents and spites and jealousies and so on and so on and so on. But God is willing to accept our honest attempts to say something about at least the worst things that we remember. Okay? And because our penance is shallow, our repentance is shallow, there's always more to achieve. And that's why there's such a thing as growth in the spiritual life. Sure. If you could make a really deep, really saint-like repentance when you're 15, guess what? You're ready for paradise now. <laughs> But fortunately for most of us, there are years ahead in which to deepen that self-perception, self-understanding, and uh, self-criticism. Also, Lewis says, modern man is deceived by the idea that mere time cancels sin. I've heard others, and I've heard myself, recounting cruelties and falsehoods committed in childhood, as if they were no concern of the present speaker, and even with laughter. The fact of the matter is, time does nothing to alter either the fact or the guilt of sin. Sin and its guilt are there, until repentance happens. Not until you forget about them. That doesn't take them away. Only repentance can do that. Okay? And your repentance is only fruitful, of course, because of the blood of Christ. Okay. Finally, we have to, Lewis says, well, not quite finally. He says, we have to beware the feeling that there's safety in numbers. It's natural to feel that, if look, if everybody is as bad 
as the Catholic Church says, then badness must be pretty darned excusable. If everybody fails the exam, the exam must have been too hard. Don't bet on it. Don't bet on it. It's as though fallen man has grown up in a funny sort of pocket, a social pocket in which uh, what would be looked at with horror in the larger world seems eh, excusable, not too bad. But if we could see ourselves as the angels see us, or as an unfallen race would see us, we would very quickly revise our complacent judgments of ourselves. Okay. Um, When you reflect that you cannot be as consistently charitable, concerned, merciful, responsible as you would like to be, you may tell yourself, well, it's God's fault. He demands the impossible. Well, if you read St. Paul, it does sound as though we cannot live up to the fullness of the demand God makes on our goodness, our charity, our mercy, and so on. And that's irrelevant. It is irrelevant because perfect obedience is just not what most of us are even striving for. Come on. Some degree of obedience, charity, concern, concern for others, and so on, which you and I have failed to attain in the last 24 hours was possible. Sure. You could have been a little better, and you know it. Okay. Should we go from a um, uh, modern secular attitude back into an attitude of gloom? Was gloom ever the prevailing atmosphere in the Catholic Church? Was the medieval church gloomy? Think so? Should we be thinking all the time about, oh, gosh... The human race is such a mess, and I am such a mess, and ugh, what is there to be cheerful about? Lewis addresses that, and he says, look, all sadness, which is not either arising from repentance for a concrete sin, or hastening towards concrete amendment, or pity and hastening to achieve activist assistance is just bad. There's nothing good about sadness. Sadness is good if it's right now accompanying a repentance of mine. I feel like death warmed over that I did that nasty thing. All right. Sadness is okay to accompany repentance. Sadness is okay when you see someone else in need and are hastening to do something about it. Other than that, sadness is no good at all. And the church has never encouraged gloominess. As a matter of fact, 
There are lots of interesting stories about people who uh, oh, had very admirable lives and so on, and um, they were proposed for canonization, and they never made it because the examiners found that they were lifelong gloomy. Yeah. Okay. Now, if human wickedness is not some imaginary medieval myth, but is a reality, which we don't like to face about ourselves, we do have to face it from time to time, but sometimes we can overlook it, we don't like to think about it, but if it's real, where did he come from? Is the subject of the next chapter, chapter 5, on the fall of man. According to that doctrine, Christian doctrine of the fall, man is now a horror to God and to himself, and a creature ill-adapted to the universe, not because God made him so, but because he has made himself so by abuse of his free will. Lewis thinks that that is the operative core of the doctrine of the fall. That's the theological core of it. Now, there's a great deal more to say how to interpret all the symbolic elements in the story in Genesis, the tree, the serpent, the, the apple. But the core of it is that we do not have bad tendencies inside of us because of how God made us. It isn't because we were evolved from the apes and so deep down we have some vicious simian dispositions. Okay. We're not descended from the wolves so that deep down we are all still a little bit wolfish. No. No, no, no. And it isn't because the devil made us bad. He tempted us, all right. But we're the ones who chose. So we became as we are because of our own free will. Now, how could our own free will, when turned to evil, make such an enormous difference in our lives, in our psychology, in our society? How could that be? How could the fact of sinning account for everything the Bible says about Adam's fall? Well, I want you to imagine human beings created in such a state that all of their organic functions are completely at the control of their will. Okay? You're never hungry whether you want to be or not, but only because you choose to be. Okay? Time to be hungry now. Wouldn't that be nice? You're never thirsty except when you want to be, and so on for other appetites and passions. And your will is totally directed by your intellect. And your intellect is submitted to the higher judgment of God. In such a state of human nature, we are totally under the control of the best that is in us, totally under the control of our own best judgment. And that best judgment is certified by its conformity to the good judgment of God. All right? Now, 
What happens when your intellect entertains the suspicious idea that what God wants for me might not really be in my best interest? Hmm? It's a sin of pride. I might know my interest better than God. I might be smarter than God. He thinks he knows everything, but hey, it's my life. I have some ideas about it. Maybe my ideas are better than his. Everybody can see an element of pride in that. And then there's this. Okay, look, 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 look. God, I will admit, is a very good general manager of the world. I wouldn't want it on my shoulders. He wants to manage the cosmos fine. He seems to be doing a great job of it. I'm all for it. But I have my own life. And in my own life, I would like a little more control. I want a corner of the world that I control. My life. See? Now, please note, temptations like that have nothing to do with any sense appetite. This is not lust. This is not hunger. This is not thirst. This is not laziness. The temptation is purely intellectual. And therefore, a temptation like that could arise in a being who is never tempted by the flesh. Because this being's flesh appetites are completely under the control of his will and his reason. Still, when Adam entertains these suspicions, when Eve entertains these suspicions, a terrible thing happens. The human will usurps control over human life, over my life. I'm no longer be, going to be simply subservient to God. All right, now what happens when the will usurps the role of being sovereign in one's own life? Well, first of all, you make a very painful discovery. Fine. You want to put your will in charge? Okay. Put your will in charge. Now let's see how well your own unaided will, with nothing more than your own unaided judgment, is able to control your appetites. What happens in the fall of man, in Adam, is instantly all of the appetites start going their own way. They're no longer under rational control. Okay? All of our appetites reach out to tasty-looking objects before we even think about it. When we think about, oh, do I really want that? Do I really want to do that? Do I really want to eat that? Do I really want to drink that? Etc., etc. Our better judgment is always playing catch-up ball, isn't it? Oh, no, second thought, maybe not. But the first part is, yes, go, yes, eat, yes, consume, munch etc. So our appetites are busy, they go their own way, they are now in rebellion. Our lower nature is now in rebellion against intellect and will. We can no longer keep vigil just because we want to, because our will doesn't manufacture its own uh, stay awake drops. Conk out.
etc., etc. And so often all of these things take over. And something else happens as well, which is a little bit harder to explain. Adam, in his innocence, like Eve in her innocence, had no trouble hearing the voice of God. And as soon as they committed the fall, they had trouble. They became, in effect, deaf to it as we are. Now, God could appear, of course, and make his chastisement known. But we become no longer attentive to or sensitive to the will of God as an ongoing, day-by-day, hour-by-hour affair. We're now deaf to it. It's like this. Oh, I hate to give an example drawn from ah, the abuses of recent youth culture. But you know these kids who now get to be about 14, 15, and nothing is ever loud enough. The drums, the basses, the guitars, it's all, and the shrieking singers, louder, louder, louder. And first thing you know, they're deaf. Okay. They suffer hearing loss. Yeah. And once you suffer hearing loss, some things are just gone. And it's also like this. Suppose you did something to yourself that made you lose your ability to enjoy music. In other words, suppose you made yourself tone deaf. Some people are born that way. And for all I know, there's something you could do to yourself to make yourself that way. Maybe if you took tone deafness pills, you could become tone deaf. And what happens as soon as you were tone deaf? You no longer have the option to enjoy music. You can't like it. It all sounds like racket. It all sounds the same. It's all just noise. You can't enjoy it anymore. Now, a person who can enjoy it can consider the merits of going to a concert. Going, you know, here or there, a real concert, not some rock group. It can consider the merits of going to a concert, but if you're tone deaf, you can't even consider the merits. Right? This is our state after the fall. Because we are deaf to the voice of God and tone deaf to the spiritual good God offers, we cannot find it an attractive choice. You want to put in front of us something we sure are going to like? Make it fleshy. Make it technicolor. Make it brassy. Let it fill the senses, and we're going to like it. But God, colorless, odorless, bodiless, doesn't seem like an attractive choice. See what I mean? Once you lose that ability to hear the divine music, the soul is in a kind of deafened state. And once the soul is in a deafened state, it can no longer hear easily or hear at all the call of God to return to a better state. And so the fall explains the state we are now in. We are in a state of rebellion against God. 
we have usurped his place in our lives by making our own wills the last word in our lives. Our own wills. And the most painful thing we can imagine would be giving that up, says Lewis. And I think he's right. He gets most of these ideas from St. Augustine. St. Augustine said, as soon as I'm conscious of myself and conscious of God, I face an awesome choice. Should I make myself the center of my interest and attention, or should I make God the center? And all of us are born with ourselves as the center. And it takes a great deal to move beyond that in any way. And to move all the way beyond it back to God has to be a work of divine grace. All right. Now this brings me to the final chapter that I want to say a few words about tonight. This is uh, chapter 5 on human pain. And here Lewis makes it clear that the discussion is no longer about pain in the neurological sense of the word, but rather about pain in the general sense of suffering, disappointment, anxiety, anything you dislike. Okay? Everything which is a neurological pain can be uh, something you dislike if the pain is intense enough. But not everything you dislike is a neurological pain. Disappointment, disillusionment, where you had trusted somebody and you're betrayed. Uh, sorrow. Those are not events in your nervous system. But they are the kind of suffering that Lewis now wants to talk about and concentrate on. All right. Given our discussion of the fall, we can say in summary, we are not merely imperfect creatures who must be improved. We are, as Newman said, rebels who must lay down our arms. So the first answer to the question why our cure should be painful is that to render back the will which we have so long claimed for our own is in itself, wherever and however it is done, a grievous pain. Yeah. We all remember, he says, this self-will as it was in our childhood. The bitter, prolonged rage at every thwarting, the bursts of passionate tears, the black satanic wish to kill or die rather than give in. That's why old-fashioned governesses and nurses and so on knew that you, in a certain way and in a certain extent, you had to break the child's will. You had to get them over that brutal refusal to surrender. Oh, yes. When my wife and I were in the uh, long process of raising sons, uh, we came across an extensive bibliography on the strong-willed child. Did you ever read any of those books? Oh, boy. 
Let's just put it this way. You know when you've got one. <laughs> Fortunately, we only had one, but that was enough. Usually children are a whole lot easier to deal with than that. They don't have that black satanic wish to kill or die rather than give in. But that kid did. <laughs> and we can all remember something of that. So there is an intrinsic painfulness about giving up our own will in the direction of our lives. But that's only part of the story. Because paradoxically, giving up our own will is made easier when pain or suffering or disappointment make us look again at the things we have always wanted. Okay? What did I want with my will? I have always wanted things that I thought would make me happy. And along about age, I don't think I should tell you this. Along about age 21, ah, ah, I discovered the happiness creating power of booze. Oh, my. Okay. And um, I experienced the pleasure of drunken revels. Well, not too drunk. Fortunately, I had a somewhat sensitive tummy, so I couldn't get roaring. But everybody lit up, everybody happy, great time. So glug, glug, glug. And then comes the morning and the hangover. The hangover tells me there's something wrong with the kind of pleasurable life I was seeking. Yes. Pain, says Lewis, is God's megaphone to a deaf world. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. This was the megaphone to rouse a young drunk to reconsider where he should go with his life. And I was lucky, because back in my day, as an undergraduate and all that, uh, uh, whiskey was the worst there was. Now it's not so benign. Now you can end up absolutely psychologically crippled by addictions to this stuff. And the addiction doesn't go away like a headache by 11 a.m. the next day. Right. Okay. Another job that pain does is shatter the illusion that all is well with us. That what we have is our own and is enough for us. Now... Once you reach a certain age, oh, let's say 21, okay, and you get out of the arms of that particular welfare state known as the school system, you realize that you have to pay for your own life in various ways, and you begin to invest more and more of your time and attention and effort to um, uh, getting a roof over your head, getting reliable transportation, getting a job that doesn't, uh, you know, bore you to tears, and so on. And when you have struggled in those ways and you get these things, oh, 
life seems to be off to a pretty good start. And, uh, you know, there's nothing wrong with any of that stuff. But the trouble is, we tend to think it's enough for us, and we tend to think it's our own to keep. Well, you know about that job that you thought you'd have? Along came Obama. <laughs> or Bush, or whoever. I don't care who you blame it on. But all of a sudden, the economy takes a downturn, the job is not there. That house that you finally got and can accommodate everybody, and, and, and along comes a flood. Or worse than that, a fire. Oh, I'll tell you a story about a property we had. We still have it, actually. <laughs> Turned out there was a problem in the dryer downstairs in the basement problem in the dryer. It stopped shutting off when it was supposed to shut off. Instead, the dryer would just run and run and run. So one day, we were out of the house. Come back home, the place filled with smoke. Open a window and flames gush out. A gavalt. Fortunately, there wasn't all that much open flame, but the smoke Ah, you know what happens when you have smoke like that? Every rug has to be ripped up and taken to those who do special cleaning. Every drape has to come down, everything in every drawer, everything has got to be laundered in expensive chemicals, and the walls have to be repainted. And before you can put paint on them, you have to put a layer of kills on there, K-I-L-Z, to kill the smoke smell. You don't want this. But when it happens to you, you think, gee, wasn't I a fool to rely on having that house? Wasn't I overconfident? What little I have and want to call my own is not enough for me, and my hold on it is tenuous. Is that a good word? Tenuous. Yeah, fragile. So the things we strive for in this life are easily taken away from us. And when we see this happen to other people, that also is salutary. That also reminds, it could happen to us. It could have been me. Sometimes it is me. Other times it just could have been. But every time something like that happens, when decent Hard-working people are deprived of what little they worked for. You come again to understand the stuff we can acquire in this world is just not enough to really satisfy us, to make us safe. Okay? Now, here again, we have an evidence of the humility of God. Most of us, Lewis says, Treat God the way an airman treats a parachute. There, but I, don't, I hope I never have to use it. Okay? God is there, I hope I never have to rely on him. Because meanwhile, you know, I'm, I got my income and I got my, my lawn and my house and I, kids and so on. Everything's going just fine. And then along comes an event like happened to poor Job. Okay? 
the wife and the kids die in a car crash, the house burns down, whatever, you're left with nothing. And then you say, oh God, you're all I ever wanted. You're my happiness. And God is happy to take you. You throw down the rebel flag when your fort is no longer worth defending. And he consents to take it. He doesn't insist that you yield to him when you're in the full flow of your profit. You can turn to him in misery. In other words, you can turn to him as a last resort and he's still happy to have you. I'm not sure we'd be that way at my college. Students who applied to my college as a last resort. Would we want those students? <laughs> ah! But again, God is amazingly generous. If we're willing to even have him as a last resort, he's willing to take us. And in this same uh, chapter 5 here on human pain, human suffering, uh, Lewis gives a third office of pain, and with this I'm going to end. The third office of pain is a little bit subtle to explain. But what it does is show us whether we are really doing something for God's sake or because we enjoy it. Now look, Lewis is well aware, and I hasten to say as well, the things you do for God do not have to be distasteful. Jansenism is a lie. The good doesn't have to be annoying or totally mortifying or something like that. But there arise times and occasions when you might think you're doing something for God's sake and then you're not sure. Are you doing it because you like it? Okay. I hope nobody ever asks me why I have spent my life teaching theology. Was it really to please God or because I like it? Fortunately, I've never had to face the question with any detail. But I tell you what could happen to make a thing like this really clear to me. What if God called me, started bothering my conscience to get me to do something that I would intensely dislike doing. Suppose God called me to volunteer in an AIDS hospice. Okay. God, anything but that. Could I work in a soup kitchen, maybe? Something! Oh, I want you there. You see what I mean? then I would know if I do it, I'm doing it to please you alone, oh God, and not for me. Okay? Now, I've only given you an example that I find particularly uh, challenging. Each of you can think of your own. And that, according to Lewis, is the third office of pain. To make it clear when we are really doing it for God and not in any way for ourselves. All right? Well, those are the offices of pain. According to chapter 5, there's lots more good stuff in this book. But we cannot cover it all. And I have exhausted the time made available to me. And so I will thank you all. 
and then take a question or two. You're doing my part for me, Dr. Marshner. Thank you very much for your talk. Very wonderful. <laughs> Questions? No. This is Dr. Marshner's wife. <laughs> and she's also on the board of directors of the Institute of Catholic Culture. She's allowed to hold the microphone because actually she owns it, not me. <laughs> no, no, not so. Uh, um, not meaning to uh, cause you any more suffering. Um, <laughs> no, but seriously, in the interest of, of demonstrating how you uh, pivot uh, on this subject uh, in an in a evangelizing conversation, let me pose to you a question that was posed to me once. Okay, so God does not want us to suffer. Right. So God gives us the ability to use our intellect to avoid suffering. So our intellect invents um, antibiotics. That's okay, isn't it? Yes, uh, etc. Uh, so if, if we have the ability to create a soul for God through in vitro fertilization, why is that wrong? Because, because it, it solves the suffering. But think of the terrible suffering of somebody without a child. So aren't you doing a good thing by stopping their suffering? Now, how do you pivot from that when you're having that conversation? Am I allowed to answer, or, or is this going to incriminate me? <laughs> well, it depends on what you say, Dr. Marshall. Um, Wouldn't you love to live in their household? The... Um, <clears throat> um, in vitro fertilization does not produce a soul. Uh, it does produce, in an odd way, a body for God to ensoul. And um, the procedure is not wrong because it produces a baby. It's wrong because the couple get the baby without following the natural law of marriage. There are lots of things you can do to avoid suffering that are not good. Not everything that alleviates suffering is morally good. Euthanasia, I suppose, cuts short suffering. It's not morally good. Or how about this? You reach about age 16, you decide, oh, I think my life is going to have a lot of muck in it. And so you suit yourself up and stay high on heroin or something, for the next 60 years and then die. Probably liver failure. So you have gone through the normal lifespan in a euphoric condition. Okay, that's not morally good. That is a shocking avoidance of reality. Remember that when God says he doesn't want us to suffer pain, he means he doesn't want us to suffer pain uselessly, as in hell. But he does want us to take advantage of pain in the providential ways in which he has provided it in the world. Those, those three offices of pain that I just went through, for example. And so God is trying to tell us sometimes through pain what his will is. What would you suggest to someone who wants to know what what his will is, wants to open their ears better and hear what his will is without maybe going through the pain part. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, of course, when you want to know God's will, uh, I presume you mean for your own life, 
there's no substitute to going first to the scriptures. Find out from God's own word what his will is for holiness, for righteousness, for interhuman justice, and so on. Find out what his will is, and then uh, reflect on how he has led individuals uh, into doing his will. Scriptural examples come to mind. Study those. Read the lives of the saints. And then get down on your knees and ask God to show you his will. Okay? And, um, I mean, if you really ask that prayer with openness of mind, uh, you will receive some light. It's happened in the lives of all the saints, and it's happened in lives of people who aren't saints yet. You said that um, there were some people that were considered for sainthood, and it was found that they were gloomy, and so that ended the process. What about irascible? Wasn't St. Jerome irascible? Yes, he was. And I, look, St. Jerome conveyed many blessings and enjoyed many blessings. And probably one of those is that he lived before the invention of the modern process of canonization. <laughs> But you see, I mean, mean, the point is, uh, he's irascible in his tone when he writes prose. And what I take from this is, hey, writing prose that sets your enemy's hair on fire is not a sin. (laughs) Maybe that's the wrong lesson to take, but... uh... I know someone who has a bumper sticker on their car, and it says... My religion is kindness. Um, this person has, needs to return to the church, but how, how would you answer that person? I noticed that you talked about kindness. It's fatally easy to attribute to oneself yeah. as a religion. How, what could you say to this person? Well, depending on further details of what the person thinks and doesn't think, uh, you might begin with the fact that Uh, How do you tell the difference between genuine kindness and false kindness? Okay. Suppose I see you suffering and I want to be kind to you. So I slip you a dose of poison. Is that real kindness? How about um, the kind of kindness that um, results in, uh, you know, people being put into... uh, publicly financed institutions where they're cared for by people who work like bureaucrats and have no real interest in them. Uh, Is that real kindness or is it fake? So find out what this person thinks real kindness is. And uh, I mean, I I would insist that uh, the test of real kindness is, does it meet every other moral requirement? Does this kindness respect the person's life? Does it respect the person's emotional needs? Does it respect the person's needs for access to his loved ones, her loved ones, and so on and so on? Uh, So kindness needs to be tested. And uh, when you try testing kindness, I think you're brought back to the full uh, moral code insisted on by the church. Thank you very much, Dr. Marshner.
We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.